Hello and welcome to EQ Above IQ, Parenting with Emotional Intelligence and Healing the Inner Child. My name is Trina Casey and I'm your host. Today I'm going to be interviewing Michelle E. Dickinson. She is very passionate about mental health and is an advocate. She also has had a TED Talk, which I found her and she's amazing on that TED Talk. So you should really go to YouTube and check that out. She's also a published author of a memoir called Breaking Into My Life. And she basically sees herself as the bridge that helps people to get comfortable with their mental health so that they can reach out and get the support they need. You know that on EQ Above IQ, we're all about that. She makes it okay to not be okay and thrives on making real difference in other people's lives. And that's that's what we're doing here on EQ Above IQ. And this is why I wanted Michelle on as my guest. So, hey, Michelle. Hey, Trina. How are you? Good. Welcome to EQ Above IQ, Parenting with Emotional Intelligence and Healing the Inner Child. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, I met Michelle on on Clubhouse. That place is just rocking with awesome people. I gotta say, I love it. (laughs) I haven't talked to one person that I didn't like immediately, like vibe or chill with. But Michelle was definitely high on that list. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like Tony, right? Tony, Tony, Tony too. I met Tony on Clubhouse, and he gave Tony was my first male interview too. I usually stay in the feminine realm, and and actually on Friday. I have Daniel Gomez is going to be my second male. And so, you know, because my topic is so much around the feminine, I felt like, you know what, I need to get some some masculine perspective yeah. on, on the subject and see how they feel about it. And so far, it's been great, you know, so they get it. Yes, it's so, awesome. So, Michelle, tell, tell my audience about who you are and what you do. Yeah, for sure. So I'm a, I call myself a mental health change agent. I am out to be the change that I want to see in the world, I guess you could say, after a pretty long career in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, it's, you know, if someone was to ask me where I would be five years ago, I would have said, well, work in the corporate job until I retire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, sort of things unfold differently or differently than you expect. And it all changed for me when I was invited to tell my, my story on the TED stage. Yes. And I told the story of growing up with a mother who had bipolar disorder. And then I just found myself getting very connected to the power of storytelling and the ability to reach people to understand mental health. Mm-hmm. And that led me to write my memoir, which led me to do a lot of public speaking in the space and get really present to the power that I had to be more of a change agent than just someone in a cog on a wheel in a corporate environment. So I left the corporate space and created my own company right before the pandemic. And my goal is to work with organizations and really create cultures of compassion for those struggling with invisible disability. Mm. And in I the love meantime, that. invisible disability. I love that. Oh my yeah. goodness. Just because you can't Feeling see that it. one. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. But the reality is, especially now during the pandemic, we have one in three people dealing with anxiety or depression, according to our CDC here in the U.S. So, yeah, so I work with companies to create cultures of compassion. And I also teach resilience. Resilience is something that has been requested of me by my my corporate clients to help their people just stay empowered. This is really not an easy time for people. So, yeah, that's what I do. 
Oh, wow. And it's such good stuff that you do. Oh, my goodness. Isn't it amazing how I tell people all the time, your story, your experience is important because it can help other people in just unimaginable ways. You know, I saw your TED Talk about your experience with your mom with bipolar. And I tell you, some of that resonated. I'm not, (laughs) you should see Michelle's face right now. (laughs) It's not fun, especially as a child. And because I'm working with parents to let them understand their kids' perception of their invisible disabilities. (laughs) I stole it. And (laughs) it is so important that they recognize their, the way that they model themselves in the world is how their kids are going to grow up and be, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm, one, I'm curious about how that bipolar experience affected you as a child. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, I can look back on this now from a very objective perspective because I've done the work. I've sort of gotten over the resentment and anger that I had from my mother and forgave her. But there was a time when I I could not forgive her because my mother was extremely, and you said this best in a previous interview we did, (laughs) that the hurt hurt others. My mother, she had suffered from bipolar disorder from, as I can remember, the youngest I remember seeing her like that was probably four years of age. And then all throughout her life until she died, she had been on this roller coaster of manic eyes and really, really like sad lows where she would just cry for days and there's nothing I could do to console her. I mean, that's so paralyzing for a little girl to not be able to, to have your mom not suffer. Right. And just watch the sadness and absorb that sadness and just, and sit with her with that. So I think for me, some of the things that I can say it affected me in many ways because my own needs sort of fell by the wayside. It was always about caring for her and keeping her at peace and keeping her not high, not low, but even, right? So if you, if you had any concerns, you know, you put those on the shelf, it's not the time. And so I felt like my voice got muted. And then because of the unpredictable nature of her bipolar disorder, I just never knew the mother I was going to come home to. I mean, I talk about that in the TED talk. Yeah. Like, is she going to be in a good mood? Is she going to hug me and kiss me? Or is she going to beat the crap out of me because she's in a bad mood? And it was the lack of consistency. And you know, working with kids that like consistency, children thrive on consistency. They need that what to expect kind of you know, experience, it it sort of helps them feel footed, feel rooted. And so I didn't have that. That was definitely something that. And you didn't have somebody actually be able to have the self-awareness enough to explain it, what was going on with them. Right. So like I internalized a lot of my mother's mental illness and, you know, people say to me now, like, what would you tell a child who has a bipolar parent? It's like, understand that that illness is not you. You, you have no impact on that. But, you know, back in the eighties, when I was growing up, like my father would tell me because of his own ignorance, you know, would you just be a good little girl? And then your mother won't have an upset. So like, then that was placed on, you know, so I think, yeah, I think it just makes me angry because I hear those words. I'm like, ah, it's not the kid's fault. Oh, okay. So, 
but yeah, so it's a whole big thing, but like, for the most part, I think those are the ways that it definitely affected me to the point where like, I'm a 49 year old woman still trying to make sure that I use my voice and find my voice, you know? Absolutely. And I applaud you for recognizing that too, because a lot of people don't and they don't truly begin their healing process. And, and there's no timetable on that. You know, I think one of my expressions that I don't like, because I find it to be not true whatsoever, is that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And that means you ever heard of that? (laughs) That It means that because I'm older, I can't learn. And that it's usually <laughs> you don't want to learn. Yeah, that's that's the difference. It's like, okay, I'm done. I'm this is who I am. And it's static and it's done, you know. And that's totally disempowering and not true. And and, and you just can't, you cut off all of your your abilities, you know, what is it, fifties the new forty, forties the new thirty. You know, we have so much more time and age. Once you, know, once you get to a certain age, that's not the end. I still feel 20-something in Me some too. ways. Don't tell anyone. I swear, I feel like I'm 25. And I don't care what that number is in reality, but I do feel yeah. much younger. Yeah. And you know what makes you feel that good was when you finally find your purpose. And so coming from the pharmaceutical industry, whew, that's a big shift from supposedly helping to actually helping. That's how I see that. That's how I see it. You know? Well, yeah. I mean, like people don't take those, those, they don't make those moves because we're so comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of, I sort of was different. I probably would have never left on my own, but I leveraged the experience of my position getting eliminated to say, okay, you can, you know, I live in the medicine chest of the United States in New Jersey. There's tons of pharma companies. I could go to any pharma company. But then I thought to myself, is that really, do I really want to do that? Or do I really want to be the change? And boy, it has been quite the journey trying to figure out how to do this thing called be an entrepreneur. (laughs) I know, right? It's not easy, but you know, Trina, I, I get as much exhilaration as I do trepidation around the experience. And that's how I know I'm alive because I'm standing for something bigger than myself. And that is friggin' exhilarating, more exhilarating than a consistent paycheck. Yes. Security. I just did an episode this week on Tuesday. I released yesterday. Oh yeah, it was yesterday. The power of purpose. Mm. And in that episode, I talk about how powerful cognitively and emotionally knowing what your purpose is, is on your body biologically too. You know, people who have a sense of purpose live healthier lives, have, because they do less damaging behaviors. Mm-hmm. So, so they don't smoke, they don't drink as much, they don't do things because they, they have something to do the next yeah. day. And they want to be, yeah. they want to feel good in their bodies. And I can, I can vouch for that. Gin and tonics are not my friend anymore, but you know, you just kind of like, you live better once you find your purpose. And so you can look in the mirror and smile more. You know, Mm -hmm. you have more compassion for yourself once you find purpose. So, yeah. So, yeah, that that your story really touched me. And and I know that my listeners, there's a lot of my listeners that can really relate with living with bipolar. Matter of fact, my ex-husband's mother 
just recently passed and she had bipolar mm. and how strained and how conflicting that emotion must be mm-hmm. and also kind of a sense of relief at the same time right you know what I mean because of how much chaos was created and instability and things like that for relationships and raising children up in that yeah. Yeah. you know it's like how can you not come out of that situation with some invisible damage and some invisible harm because you're always, you know, would you say you were in freeze fight or flight mode all the time? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All three or was one more? I mean, I think, you know, probably freeze more than anything, right? Like, yeah, probably freeze. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, one of the other things I find it's hard for people who have lived in homes with mental illness, especially bipolar, is conflict avoidant. Oh my gosh. If there's any kind of conflict, I mean, that was, it was, it was crazy when I was, you know, holding my boundaries and telling what I needed in my relationship with my ex. It was I was being negative. I was being this. I was like, no, I'm, you're being conflict avoidant. I'm trying to talk about it. I'm trying to figure this out. Yeah. But anything that didn't seem like rainbows and sunshine yeah. was seen as an attack, you know, and it's really hard to be in a relationship when you're conflict avoidant. You're so right about that. And that was my entire childhood avoid conflict because that was what was modeled to me. Mm-hmm. My father avoided conflict. My mother would never address anything, let alone like, I can't even wrap my head around her ever apologizing for the abuse. Yeah. But like, so I was groomed. You just put it under the carpet and you ignore it. You look the other way. So imagine a marriage that I bring that to, you know, and how it festers and festers and festers and festers and festers. I mean, I'm divorced twice. You know, <laughs> me and you both. I mean, for club. <laughs> exactly. Like, of course, because I was like a pressure cooker, pressure cooker, pressure cooker. And then psh, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out. This is too hard because you know why? Because I avoid, I avoided, I avoided. I, I made sure everything was okay. I kept everything peaceful. I kept everything looking good. Mm-hmm. And I was dying inside. I was suffering inside. I, my voice was totally muted. It's just... Yeah. That's, that's, that's tough, man. I really feel for people. And now, now as that you remember those sensations of of the inner child, what do you think would have made the difference for you? I noticed you said you never heard an apology. Apology, apologizing is a big part of my therapy and dogma with kids. It's okay to apologize. What, what else could have made the difference? I think, you know, when I think about if I could do it over again, I would have been grateful for someone to just remind me that my mother was still my mother who loved me. She was not defined by her illness, right? All I saw when I looked at her was a bipolar mother Mm. and I was at the effects of her. And I felt that I had the ability to alter her. I had this falsehood that I had the ability to change Mm-hmm. how she how she was doing in my behavior. And I think as little children and families with parents who are that way, they need to understand that there's a line where it's theirs and then it's 
the parents and that illness is, is over there. It's not with you. So I think if someone would have pulled me aside, maybe put me into therapy or just had me understand that that's your mother's illness, you know, I think that would have made, made a difference for me. Yeah. Would have, you, you would have taken away the accountability because that's what, that's what unfortunately we do as parents a lot. I remember hearing if you would just behave, we wouldn't fight like every little argument that was, it was my fault because I was actually holding my boundary. I I like, no, no, it's not my fault. And I didn't do that. Or, you know, so it was just like, wow, it's, it's crazy how quick we go. It's your fault. Oh yeah. When it's all you, it's all your emotions. And that's why it's really important as parents that you have that self-awareness piece and understand what your child is doing that's triggering your inner child. Yeah. Because usually that's the case. The adult has the cognitive prefrontal lobe ability to go, hmm, to discern better. But when parents lose it, as I say, it's not, it's not that version. It's the inner child that has been hurt, that has been triggered, that is angry, that loses it. Yeah. So when we're able to recognize that, we're able to regulate it and co-regulate with our kids because, and it's perfect. Co-regulation is the perfect word for that because it's your inner child with that child yeah. at that moment. You know, yep. and so, so you want to do what would have or could have healed your inner child in that same circumstance, in that same situation, instead of being yelled at and, and said that, you know, it's your fault. How about just some silence and a hug? And I'm going to wait until you calm down. Yeah. You know, some a little bit of empathy and compassion. Yeah for what that kid is biologically doing. You know, your, your mom in her child plus bipolar, which she probably experienced all of her life. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine the turmoil that she was going through that yeah. she projected onto you. Yeah. Little version of you. Yeah. So it's, it's wonderful that I, you know, I, I always hope everybody who has gone through that experience has done some type of therapy. <laughs> but you know, for me, it was almost like an obsession for me though, Trina, like I had a girlfriend told me, you know, I was deeply upset about something at one point and she was like, just go do the landmark forum. I did the landmark forum. And then that led me to Tony Robbins. And then in between, I had all these different therapists and I was, I was like, I think the experience of my mother and the impact that she had on my life created this craving to understand myself and understand the impact. So I was always looking for opportunities to peel back layers and understand so that I could be a better version of myself, you know? So I guess in that way, I feel like what a blessing that, that I was, you know, born inside of me, this curiosity to want to understand it more so I could be a better version of myself. That's beautiful. And that's beautiful. And that's an opportunity that we all have and that we all should see it in that way because so many people come out of those situations just saying, I'm done, I'm broken, that's it, you know? And they really disempower 
themselves and they also give up on themselves to have that analytical idea. I'm, I'm the same way as like at a very young age, I told myself, this is not right. (laughs) There's something's amiss in this situation. And so I made sure that I was constantly detaching myself away from owning it as much as I can. And I think if you give your kids that opportunity to do that, as long as you're not constantly blaming them and putting them down, they can see that's her over there. Cause I definitely wasn't told that, you know, I was never apologized to. <laughs> to this day, I don't think <laughs> I was ever apologized to for any of it yeah. because some in my community, especially, I think everyone, they just feel an apology is a weakness in yeah. saying that I'm not yeah. powerful. You know, it's okay to say you're wrong, people. It's okay. Everyone, everybody makes mistakes. Everyone yeah. makes mistakes. So you go and you are working with the more corporate environment with, with yeah. the subject matter. Yeah, you know, it's so funny how I feel like life is always unfolding and happening for us because like I remember when I was diagnosed with depression. So, you know, I was adopted. So I never thought I would deal with a depression or anything because I was like, oh, well, we don't have the same genes. But then I was going through my second divorce And I wound up getting diagnosed with depression. And I remember at the time I was building an employee resource group for people with mental illness in my company, my fortune 50 company. And I was like leading the way because I had this book and I was talking, I was going up to leaders and going, you need to talk about mental health in your staff meeting. Like I was, I was changing it. Mm -hmm. And then I had my own boss tell, accuse me of not bringing my bubbly upbeat self to work every day. Mm. And I, I had told her that I was depressed and I was dealing with it and I was getting therapy, Mm -hmm. but I thought to myself in that moment when she said, you know, you just, you didn't make your goals and you didn't bring your bubbly upbeat self to work that we know you to be every day. Mm. And in that moment, it just, it really just clicked for me. We need more compassion. Leaders need to understand, leaders need to, to First of all, they need to be self-aware, right? I think anyone who's got the responsibility of people under them, leading them, they need to be self-aware themselves so they can understand what it's like to support a team of complex human beings because we're all complex human beings based on our own experiences and meet people where they are. She didn't extend any empathy or compassion to me. And, and, and that, in that moment when I was like devastated and mad and so mad, you have no idea how mad I was, the fire was lit within me to say, that's it. I need to be the person that goes into these companies and teaches these people how to be human beings and compassionate and understand that people are dealing with all kinds of stuff and they can do a better job of meeting them where they are. Exactly. So that's, that's what I do. I, I, teach, I teach them compassion, things that they can be doing in the workplace to shift the culture, to create more understanding. And then during this pandemic, I've taught over 2000 employees, my basic resilience program that just empowers them back, putting them back into, you know, the cockpit of their lives, basically, because this pandemic has not been easy. Oh, it's been, it's been definitely mentally trying for everyone. But you know what, what's interesting, I want you to realize something. You just described the whole education system. Yeah. (laughs) You just described the whole education system. 
corporate teachers yeah. need to know, be more self-aware, yeah. meeting kids where they are, you know, educationally and emotionally. I think one of my biggest dreams and it is to create an education system based on the principles of emotional intelligence, the EQ above IQ format, mm-hmm. you know, because imagine what type of people we'd be putting out into the world if we did. Yeah. People could show up and be the best version of themselves and be accepted for who they are and thrive. And when individuals thrive, organizations thrive. When individuals are feeling like they have to fake it, they have to pretend that they're okay. You really think you're getting the best out of them? Come on. No, I just started listening to No Rules Rules. The owner and founder of Netflix wrote the book. And it's really good. It's really good. I highly recommend it. Just talking about how taking that corporate structure down and dismantling it and kind of letting people be <laughs> at work and feel like they can contribute and they can be what, what was he said, brutally honest with their critiquing, but always from the vantage point of actually helping people improve, you know, being accountable for themselves. And all of it, it was, it's just a really good book. If you, all my listeners, yeah, no rules, rules. It's a good one. I wish I remember the name of authors, but I don't, (laughs) I really don't. It's funny. I'm happy if somebody remembers the name of my book, (laughs) you know? So, wow. Yeah. Really inspiring. And, And I'm so glad that, you know, you are here and doing what you're doing because it's so important because we have to hit that top level. We have to we hit do. That top level because they're the ones puppeteering everybody else below. And if we can get the corporate type of, you know, mentality flipped to a humanistic one, yeah. I see a lot of, you know, like I call it the overlords. <laughs> You know, it's a ripple effect, right? Like if, you know, I thought about this long and hard before I went in the direction I did. I said, you know, people spend how many hours in a, in a corporate environment or a workplace? Let's just say workplace. They're spending how many hours a week in a workplace? If we can alter workplaces, that will have a trickle effect into our society, right? Because that's where people are spending the most time. And if they experience a compassionate psychologically safe work environment, they're going to, naturally, it's going to cascade into community. It it has to. And the thing is, is that it's, it's, what's interesting about the emotional intelligence movement, it started there first. I know. Yeah, it started there first. Yeah, yeah. as I was reading these books, his books, and reading about emotional intelligence and learning cognitive behavioral therapy and all this stuff. And I was just like, why aren't we putting this in schools? Right. And, you know, and I know that there are some schools that have adopted the social emotional learning, but it's not as much as you think. It's very little. And they get their little check off saying we did one, one day of yeah. social emotional learning and that's it. But we need an education system, a work environment and system where it encompasses everything, where people feel good about right. going there. I, my son hates going to school. And I, and I say, I feel you. I understand. 
Mm-hmm. I was there. If I wasn't extrinsically motivated as a child, meaning I got off on the A's and the pats on the back and, and the awards and all that stuff, I would have not gone to school either. It, it was boring and they didn't teach me how to learn. They just taught me how to go into the corporate yeah. environment and, and feel pretty bad about myself in the process. You know, I worked for a Fortune 500 company for 10 years. Yeah. It didn't get much, get me much as far as feeling of satisfaction. I had a nice check. Right. Right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's the reward. That's the extrinsic motivation. Right. Intrinsic is the only thing that actually makes us feel good about ourselves. And it's so true. Oh my God. You know, you said it best before when you were like, when you find your purpose, like I say it all the time, the day you're born is the most important day. And the second most important day is the day you find out why. And like, I'm not even kidding you. I have such a different energy about myself and about the work I do because I know it's meaningful in my heart. Like I know that. And I've never felt that way, no matter how big my corporate paycheck was. I don't care. Uh, It's like you're selling out for the ability to really show up in the world and give your gifts to the world. And we have to remember that. I, I, I really, I know we have so many people who feel trapped in this need to be secure and have certainty and then they are foregoing their gifts to the world and it just <laughs> that security is an illusion it is isn't it though <laughs> look at now that security is an illusion you never know what's gonna happen what pandemic you might walk out in the street and get hit by a bus you don't know what's gonna happen it's all an illusion so if you're not living your day-to-day life with a sense of purpose and meaning, <sighs> yeah. you're not really living, it's you true. know, you're not really living and you're not really contributing in the way. And I always tell, you know, I told my younger listeners, it's not that you're going to find it when you're five, you're not going to find it when you're 10, you're not going to find it. You're going to find different things. You're going to find motivations. You're going to find things that bring you joy. Right. And one day, probably in your forties, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> probably in your 40s <laughs> you wake up and go I'm really good at this yeah and it makes me really happy yeah if you can find that in your 20s and if you've got the support of family and friends to get you there yes that's, that's what I'm trying to be for my son yeah. but still every 10 years Tony and I talked about this every 10 years you shift Yeah, it's true. It's so true. And like, I realized too, like, I don't have any regrets of working 19 years in the industry because I feel like those were vital learning years. Those were vital years that positioned me to be able to do what I am now doing. So everything is always perfect. We, we, we shouldn't discount those experiences that compound on one another and lead us to where we're supposed to be. Exactly. It's a part of the journey. This life is a journey, not a destination. And it's, it's so important that we start taking on that perspective. Gosh, it's such a great conversation. What would you tell, last, last question. Okay. What would you tell those survivors and thrivers of bipolar? What would, advice would you give to them right now where you're at? Yeah. I mean, I think it's about recognizing that you are not your diagnosis. I think a lot of times people collapse the two, who you are and the illness. 
and that can be very disempowering. So I think understanding that, my goodness, there are so many people thriving in this world with a mental health challenge and there's no reason that you have to feel limited or defined by your diagnosis. Exactly. Exactly. I love that. I don't let PMDD control my life and my, my, my journey because it's just a small fraction of who I am. And right. I embrace that because there's a lesson in it. So thank you, Michelle. It's been so great chatting with you for almost an hour. And <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Trina. You are, you are such a love. I'm so grateful to have met you. Me too. You just make me smile. I, don't, I think you just are bubbly, but not in like that fake way. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. You have a great rest of your day. You too. That was such a great interview with Michelle. Uh, I really appreciate her being so vulnerable about her journey with bipolar with her mom. A lot of us go through a lot of things. Like I've, I've mentioned on the show before I, I deal with PMDD and You know, mental wellness is something that is at the forefront because it's something that should have been at the forefront at the beginning. Our society as it is right now is not very healthy. And when you live in a sick society, you produce unhealthy people. Though most of us are out there really doing our best, really trying to rise above the programming, there are a lot of us who are not. And they're deeply embedded in it. So it's always refreshing to talk to somebody who has come out from the other end of that. It's inspiring. It lets you know that you're not alone in your your struggles and your journey. And you know what? That is what we are. We're a connected community and we just have to really open ourselves up and be vulnerable because that's our, actually our superpower, you people. Our vulnerability is what makes us actually strong, not weak. So you parents out there who find it difficult to say your mia culpas to your kids, get over that. You know, you're teaching your kids such value. As we said in the interview, just to hear our parents say, I'm sorry for their mistakes would have made the biggest impact on on our lives. Just to know that it wasn't about us. So those of you who are doubting that, I promise you, even I, I, I challenge you to videotape it the moment you apologize to your upset kid for your upset kid, your inner child's behavior, you're going to see such a light return to their eyes. I promise you. And if it's not at that immediate moment, it will be later. My experience is that when I do this, my son actually apologizes for his behavior too. So I do hope you got some value out of that like I did. And I sincerely hope you have a blessed day. 